We all want more freedom, and a lot of us work hard now in the hope we'll feel free later. What if there was another way? A way to feel happier, more free, and confident to get better results right now. Welcome to Your Freedom Unlimited, where we share practical stories and strategies to help you show up authentically, drop your fears, and take inspired action on what matters most to you. I'm your host, Jen Ramsey. As a coach with a love for metaphysics, science, spirituality, and strategies that get results, I'll help you step away from self-doubt and create a powerful new story for your life, business, or career. Join me. Hey everyone, Jen Ramsey here for this week's interview episode of Your Freedom Unlimited. And this week, I am so excited to be introducing to you a great friend of mine, Fabienne Vales from the UK. So Fabienne is an expert on emotional and mental well-being in the education sector. She's got over 20 years experience teaching people of all ages and is also the director, also French language director at the University of Bristol. And with all of this experience, Fabian is now on a mission to change the face of education by embedding well-being into the curriculum so students and staff can flourish and succeed. Fabian has written two books, How to Grow a Grown-Up and also The Flourishing Student, Every Tutor's Guide to Promoting Mental Health, Well-Being and Resilience in Higher Education. She's now testing her Flourishing Students model with research at the University of Bristol. And through her business, Flourishing Education, Fabienne works internationally offering workshops, talks and programs and private sessions on flourishing in education to leaders, teachers and learners of all levels. And she's also a podcaster with a podcast called Flourishing Education. So Fabienne, so great to have you here on the show today. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. No, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, it's great to have you here and to to talk about such an important topic. I'm a really strong believer in, you know, a couple of basics for human life and they are great health and great education. You know, my view is that when we've got both of those two things in hand, then we've got a really great platform for doing whatever it is that we would like to do in our lives. And um, so uh, when I met you, we've known each other for probably about a year now. And um, when I met you, I was very interested to understand about your work in terms of how you're helping people to to flourish in education. Um, but before we get there, and I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about your backstory, you know, what what led you to to this work that you're doing now and a little bit about your, your journey to freedom? So thank you, first of all, for having me. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Um, yeah, so a bit of background. I... Um, I guess the reason I'm doing, I'm looking at what makes young people flourish is that as a learner myself, I've, I haven't always flourished. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I guess I grew up in back in France in a system that was quite, that didn't really empower all learners to, to find their way of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, early parts of, of childhood, I, I, was, I was struggling with learning. Um, and I really felt, you know, I had loads of teachers who kept telling me that I would amount to nothing and 
that I wasn't you know, particularly one of my French teacher, which is quite ironic because now I teach French at university. So, you know, never believe what your teachers tell you. Um, in effect, if they say that you will not amount to anything, then you know, don't listen to that. Um, we decide we make the story. We do. We, you know, we make it up and we decide what life, how life unfolds. Um, and so I guess, you know, I grew up thinking that I wasn't good enough and, you know, feeling like I'm an imposter. Um, and and that has been, you know, in the background for a long, long time. Um, and then when I had the children, I decided to go on a bit of a self-development journey. So I trained into in mindfulness and, and NLP and hypnotherapy. And then I, I also search I went on the search for spiritual teachings because I really felt that that was part of my life that wasn't you know that wasn't developed enough Mm. um and I guess you know that has taken me to who I am right now so um I'm by no way you know the finished product and I'm still you know I still still thinking about my future self and what my future self I want my future self to look like um but I'm quite happy where I'm at at the moment I think Mm. well what a great thing to say and I think you're right it's it's this notion of how can we feel happy with where we're at at the moment and I that's that's really what this podcast is all about is how do we find that happiness within ourselves without having to go for the utopian you know to win the lottery or whatever it is how can we find this happiness within ourselves that is that is that true freedom within ourselves so it's interesting there in that journey you mentioned you went on on the path of I mean let's start back you were talking about your own childhood and I guess being told that you perhaps wouldn't amount to anything and when I think about all of those things that I've just shared in your introduction you know that's the complete opposite of someone who was told that she wouldn't amount to anything. You know, you've written books, you're you're teaching internationally, you're working with people all over the world. So, um, you know, that's that's just fantastic. And you're right, it is about that story that we tell ourselves and you chose to tell yourself a different story. What was the piece? You you mentioned that you felt that the that, that self-development, that spiritual component of your life wasn't developed. What helped you identify that that was part of the path that you wanted to go down what 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 triggered that was there some event or was it just sort of a, a curiosity I'm, I'm curious about that I think it was more um having children so mm-hmm. having my my eldest who's now you know almost 13 and then my youngest when my youngest was born um age 10 I really really felt like I was reproducing a lot of the um the things that my parents were doing when when I was younger um, and I didn't feel happy with with that as a mother so that Mm. really triggered a huge search for you know okay how can I be a better parent Um, and that required of me to change you know a lot of the beliefs and and you know to explore my values um, and to bring in awareness I guess so I would say becoming a mum made a big difference. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's such a such a life-changing event, isn't it? I mean, everything that mm-hmm. was until that point uh, is different and you have a different set of priorities and suddenly you have 
when you have two, you know, when you have this little being that you need to look after. And as you say, it's this, how do I, uh, the things perhaps I was doing before, it's funny when you, when you see that you've got a child you're, you're role modelling for in many ways and you, you're responsible for them. So how do you bring them into the world in the best way that you possibly can? And that's not to say anything against any our parents really, is it? It's just they, would, they did what they were taught. But we've been in, a, in an era where there's so many more, so much more available to us as parents to understand what we can do. Was there one in, one you mentioned? Um, there was some beliefs or some some ways of being that you felt weren't working for you. Was there one in particular that you felt wasn't working for you that you wanted to address? Yes. So um, I think the, the the one that I changed the most is that I, as a parent, have all the answers for my children, and I have to tell them what to do. Um, mm-hmm. I now view my children as my biggest teacher. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> they um, and trusting that they also within themselves have a guidance system that tells mm-hmm. them what feels right and does not feel right. And mm-hmm. and so me coming down and imposing on them what I believe is right for them. Um, is almost telling them that I know better than they do, um, and and I think that that has to, that has to be the biggest shift in terms of my approach to mm. to you know, my relationship with my children. Mm, mm. No, it's it's a it's a great one, isn't it? It's but it's again, it's letting go of a lot of old conditioning. You know that how we were brought up as as, as girls compared to then how we bring our own children up and. You're right. It's it's letting the go of that that option that I know best. How did your boys respond to that when you let go of the reins in that way? What what happened? What changed? Um, well, I guess they were very little, so mm. I think that's all they've known. In in effect, is sort of you know I have changed, and probably with my youngest. That, that's all he's known because I started I started my my journey into you know sort of like self-development and, and spirituality when he was born so maybe my eldest has has experienced you know two and a half years where I was a little bit stricter um and maybe that's why he's 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 slightly different I don't know I don't know if it's nature nurture you know Mm. they are different individuals so it would be difficult Mm. to say um Mm. they've pretty much i mean you know from from the age of two for my eldest and and you know from the minute he was born with with jack i sort of started shifting my approach so yeah they but but they 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 say i mean i can see that what i've taught them or you know the way i've approached it, it, their education is, is having an effect on them because they say things like to each other, I don't like your behavior right now, rather than, you know, I don't like you. Mm. So they make a big difference between the behavior and the person. Yeah. And the fact that you can loathe someone's behavior, not like what they're doing, but still love them or, or you know, still be okay with who they are as individuals that's um, right yeah so i i see 
those that that is different you know that's fantastic i mean that's a very mature comment for a 10 or a 12 year old to make isn't it i don't like your behavior as opposed to i don't like you and um i i i yeah i do remember those times with our boys and you know it's very very it's very can be very stressful as a parent but it can also be very stressful it's stressful for them in terms of in these interactions and you're right if it's not they're not taking it personally then they can make it mm. then it actually really can allow them to be themselves it doesn't it's not an attack on them personally which is amazing mm. yeah yeah you, you mentioned something else earlier about you had an increased awareness could you expand on that a little bit as well yes so well i think i think it just that comes from the practicing the mindfulness but I think it's the key to being a more conscious parent mm -hmm. is that if we're not conscious of our beliefs our values what's going on our thoughts our emotions then we just we just believe whatever pops up so the thoughts and then you know we will behave or act following that thought so mm. for me, awareness is the base of, of the person I am, you know, just mm. being an observer, the observer of of the mind and what's going on, you know. Mm. The, and that's what you've been mind. doing. Yeah, and that's what you've been doing through your mindful. So you have, so you've, you've studied mindfulness and you've now integrated that into your life. How, how does that, how does that, um, how, do you, how, do, how does that work in your daily life? Um, so I guess there's the daily practice. Um, so I meditate in the morning and in the evening. Mm -hmm. um, but also I think I'm a much more, you know, I'm aware of, so I'm, it's almost like I'm, I'm the observer of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, I pay close attention to I mean you know like everybody else it, it don't get me wrong I'm not a Buddha and I'm not perfect so <laughs> far from it right I'm still human the reason I'm still here is because I'm human mm. <laughs> but um, there's a lot more there's increased awareness increased sort of insights into okay what are my what's this thought and and then more choices, I guess. It's sort of mm. like being more empowered because you can either follow the thoughts and act or not. Um, mm. And even if sometimes I'm, I'm caught in the, because, you know, research says that between 50 and 60% of the time we work on our unconscious mind. So, you know, you just, we're on autopilot. Mm. Even if I sort of get into autopilot for whatever reason, um, and something pops up, I'm much quicker at sort of looking at it and sort of reverting back to, okay, what type of creation do I want in my life? Mm. So, yeah. How do I want this moment to be as opposed to just yeah. reacting to it and so on? I, yeah, I agree with you. That's been the big big shift that I've had since I've started, you know, really diligently and, and enjoying meditation, like regularly meditating but enjoying it. And um, it's a huge, it's a huge shift in your in your world, isn't it? When that happens, yeah, can you absolutely. can you imagine a time now not meditating? Can you imagine that you wouldn't do it? 
No, because it's, it's like brushing my teeth or having a shower. I wouldn't get out of the house without brushing my teeth or having a shower. So it's part of. And I notice, you know, if, if there's a day where you know, I feel tired in the evening and I might not meditate before I go to bed, my sleep is different. So, mm. you know, I, yeah. Um, so no, absolutely not. Um, and when I teach mindfulness, sometimes I teach mindfulness to, to young people at, at work. Um, the biggest excuse people use is I'm busy, you know, I can't get mm. it in. I always say to people, hang on, you know, you give to others 24-7, you give a lot, and you're not prepared to give yourself like five minutes a day, you know. Exactly. I know. And it's not a big ask. And that's how when, because I do the same thing when I'm teaching meditation, I do exactly the same thing. I say, can you find five minutes for yourself? And mm. if you can't find five minutes for yourself, there's, to me, well, that's that's pointing to some other, you know, issues around worthiness. And, and, and I guess perhaps some people don't want to delve into, perhaps don't want to delve into look into what's going on inside. And I think there could be a fear sometimes if I meditate, well, I'm going to mm. find some things that I don't necessarily want to look at but really meditation is it's it's a path to a, sm a smoother happier more calm existence so I've found at least and I think um I think the research probably bears me out on that so yeah it's really really powerful and it is it's just finding that that space regularly to do it so um and I love your analogy I you know wouldn't leave, and I'm the same I wouldn't leave the house without you know, having a shower or, or brushing my teeth. It's the absolutely vital things I have to do every day and, and I agree with you. Mm. I'm probably the same way. So yes, and I and I also think that for me it's it's also the analogy of the plane. So, you know, if you want to be of service to others, you you have to put your oxygen mask on first. Mm. You have you can't mm. pour from an empty cup. Um and and that's but also part of the the advantages and the benefit of of doing mindfulness it's not selfish to to give ourselves um, enough oxygen so we can then give back to others um so i think that's that's really really important and, and really vital that people hear that in, you know in that piece that it's not selfish to look after ourselves first because Otherwise, we can't give to others effectively. That's it. You're exactly right. And, in fact, I think the thing that I've found and with a lot of work that I do is I'm coaching people as they're getting older into their 40s and 50s, they're finding that they don't have the reserves that they used to have and the things that used to work, the strategies and techniques that used to work no longer work. And um, it's about finding this other place within yourself. But it's also the the... the the recuperation that, that meditation can give you, you know, yoga nidra, which is a very calming sort of body rotation type of meditation. They say that's the, that gives you back the equivalent of, of, of a certain percentage of sleep um, because you've calmed your body to such a degree. So there's so many health benefits as well. I was, I was reading, I won't go into it all here, but I was, I was reading a book by a neuroscientist the other day. And he said, he said, regardless of any other benefits he said it's just like exercise there's so much to meditation in terms of what it just does for your physiological being as opposed to your emotional and mental well health well-being mm. as well so what a great platform then um in terms of your own personal life in terms of how you so you had that breakthrough you had your own children realize that 
there was a need to do this parenting thing in a very different way. Where did it come to you? You've been, you know, as I said earlier, you've been educating for more than 20 years. You are French language director at the University of Bristol. When did it come to you that that perhaps you wanted to do this work in helping people flourish in education? What what inspired that? Was there a was there a particular episode or incident, or was it again just an awareness over over a period of time? No, definitely there was an event. Um, mm-hmm. And the event is I used to work for the university between 2000 and 2005 and then I took a nine-year gap where I left and I set up my own business. So my background is in linguistics and in what we call intercultural competence, so cultural agility, looking at what people make, uh, you know, what skills people have when they are culturally agile, when they live in a foreign country and they adapt that foreign country um, and I was teaching that to business people you know just quite happy and then the boys obviously working part-time being with the boys and then the boys went to primary school and when my youngest started primary school um, I, I said to my hu- husband okay we've, we have two options here either I go um, and look for more clients or you know I find something else um, and that sort of something else came in the form of a text message from a colleague at the university saying, there's an opportunity for a sabbatical. So, you know, for one year, do you want to come? Um, and to be completely honest, initially, I didn't want to go back to Haiti. Um, mm-hmm. And I sort of really found loads of excuses not to go back but it was almost like the universe kept saying no 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 you need to go back you need to go back so as an example I kept saying but you know it's full time and the boys um, and then my neighbor set up as a childminder and said I'll have your boys Um, so things like that kept happening (laughs) Um, and then in this day in 2014 I ended up going back to um, the to the university um, and we and what I found then in 2014 to say that it was a shock is an understatement I was completely and utterly horrified by what I discovered like young people were so stressed and anxious and and where clearly a lot of them were languishing rather than flourishing um, wow because I'm quite curious I started researching and going what is going on here (laughs) how how interesting so that nine years gap so it was nine years not Mm -hmm. I mean it's a period of time but it's not an enormous amount of time in the scheme of a whole life I guess and for the for you to notice such a distinct difference in so that how the students were so literally their well-being you saw a big difference and was this all students or was this students starting out at the beginning of university or was it students throughout wherever they were in their life at uni? No, throughout. So throughout uh, university life. Um, yes, from from first year to, to all the way to final year. Um, and I think it, it I, I always use my, the analogy of the, you know, the intercultural competence, which was really helpful is that, I don't know if you know, but when we enter a new culture, we go through something that's called culture shock. So you yep. go, it's almost like a, you know, it's a sort of U-curve like that. And so you enter and initially you're quite euphoric and everything looks amazing and, you know, it's fantastic. 
it's called the honeymoon period and then you just go down and then you start noticing all of the things that they do completely differently from your you know how you do things and that really triggers your values and your beliefs um and and then there's adaptation and what i've noticed with students is that that a lot of them were encountering a huge culture shock when they arrived in higher education not surprisingly because the system from primary to secondary is very funneled they're really sort of like taken care of and told you know this is how you do it the answer is in at the back of the book all of those things and then they arrive at university I mean I don't know if it's the same in Australia but certainly in the UK we just sort of say to them welcome to the independent world of critical thinking and they just look at you and go oh my god what is that I don't know and 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 writing academic essays is a little bit like learning a foreign language you have to learn how to write academic pieces of work which is not the same as writing you know an essay for for your a levels or you know for your gcse so you know um very challenging for them very yep it is here too it's similar it's very um yeah it's funneled and i think we you know we we look at after our kids until you're, you're 12 you know they're looking after all of their needs in terms of their studies but also their, all of their extracurricular activities and then suddenly they get to university they get a license you know, all of this sort of open you know life opens up in a big way but with the, with far less supervision as you say mm-hmm. but i'm interested because i mean that that circumstance would have been similar from the nine-year gap that you had. What else was it that was different that you think the kids were going through? What was different culturally or from a societal perspective that you felt they were struggling more? So this is something that we talk a lot, Dominic, my colleague, and I talk a lot about in our book, How to Grow a Grown-Up um, for, for Parents. But basically, I think, you know, a lot of people say to me, what's the one thing that has changed that makes the biggest difference? Um, there are it's multifaceted so there are huge huge reasons why young people are the way they are I think one I mean I'll give you a, a, a few of those I think one of the biggest reasons young people are uh, showing a lot of stress and anxiety is that they are being raised in a completely uh, competitive environment so from, again, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the UK, certainly, when you have children, um, you know, you have World Book Day, for example, but they have to, to have the best outfits. Um, and it's about winning the competition. Um, if you look at uh, TV programs and what young people uh, watch, you know, you can't bake a cake without it being a competition. You can't mm. ice skate without being a, a competition. You can't find love unless you go on this special island. Um, mm. And that really gives the message that it's about competitiveness and, you know, dividing and, you know, the other might get your, you know, the, the, the best results. And that with the notion that more and more young people are going to university which is great i mean tony blair obviously said education 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 and encourage young people to be educated which which i have nothing against but the 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 difficulty is that now we have one in two young people who go to university and one in four who get the first 
So then mm. you ask them to work in groups and you just sort of say, right, okay, the four of you will be working in a group. And they, the, the employers say, we need you to have a first to get into our um, you know, graduate program. And, and they then look at their peers and they just go, well, hang on, four of us, only one of us will get a first. I'm not sure mm. I want to work with you. So that plus social media and technology which gives them access to a lot of, you know, constant news, which is very negative, and that might trigger a lot of anxiety, particularly if they haven't got the emotional maturity to deal with that, mm. and to, you know, and the vehicle to express the, that stress and anxiety, um, yep. is compounded by the fact that social media is all about highlight reels. So if we're completely honest, as adults, we just will admit that we never put anything negative or, you know, things, you know, pictures of us looking like this on social media. <laughs> um, and so they look at their peers and they think, well, they're doing brilliantly and I'm not what's going on. Um, and it, it's really challenging for them. It, it, it's really, really tough. Mm. So that's. Yes, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. And those are things that I've thought about. I agree, um, particularly the, the impact of social media. It's just, mm. it's stressful for anyone, but particularly in those teenage, and I guess late teenage, early adult years, you're still forming your personality, your persona, if you like, who you're presenting to the world and 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 who how you're going to be in the world. And then to have all of these sort of, these inputs from different people. And, and as you say, the showreel, the showreels are very, very dangerous thing I think particularly you know particularly for young people so so lots of pressures you're saying so a lot more pressure in that nine year so that in that nine year span a lot more pressure than than perhaps they might have young people might have experienced even a decade earlier yes and mm. then and then an educational system that funnels and gets them to uh, you know, this is how you learn, this is how you get the A star. So also giving young people the identity of I am an A star pupil, I am bright. Um, and so, you know, learning how to play the game, to, you know, to get the good mm. grades. And then they arrive at university where, you know, the, the, the critical thinking is different and it requires different set of skills and it requires them to step out of their comfort zone and to you know, grow as an individual and learn new approaches to academic writing, for example. And when your identity is very fixed, that you just sort of say, I am an A-star pupil, and to be an A-star pupil, this is what I do, um, then it makes it really, really challenging mm. to when when suddenly you've done really, really well, um, and, but you were in a small pond, um and then you go into a bigger pond and there are also very good A-star pupils, some mm. of them better than you. Um, and that really shatters your identity and young people just go, who am I? You know, mm. if, if I'm now getting lower grades, does it mean that I'm not clever anymore because mm. they've associated their grades with their level of intelligence? Um, so all of that... Plus, maybe, you know, as parents, we have, we are protecting our children much more 
So, you know, there's that bubble wrap or helicopter parenting or snowplow parenting, whatever you want to call it, or parenting. So where you sort of like want to be your young person's friends. Um, and that is also uh, an issue because, because if you remove all obstacles in front of your children, um, and I'm not in favor, you know, if I could remove all the obstacles for my children and make their life really smooth, then I, I would love that. But life is not like that. Life yeah. will throw curveballs at you and will throw challenges at you. And the sooner you learn to know that those experiences are for your growth and your expansion and that we grow and expand when we experience a challenge, and we look at what's the, the nugget in that particular experience and what we can learn from this to grow and expand, um, then they're better equipped to arrive you know, into adulthood, um, not being a victim, but being really good conscious creators. And I think that's very important. Oh, I, I completely agree with you. I completely, and it, you've just said some, some real gold there. They arrive in adulthood as conscious creators of their lives rather than victims. And I think that's ultimately what we all want. And um, and if we could be teaching our children that from a young age, our society could look very different in a couple of generations as well, couldn't mm -hmm. it? Just, just yes. amazing. Um, yes, and also teaching that as conscious creators, it's also moving away from that notion of competitiveness mm. so we can, you know, the, the what really I'm passionate about is is... We, our educational systems are very focused on, um, you know, we have at the moment neuroscience of, sort of say, three main brains. I'm sure they'll find much more neurons throughout mm. our bodies, but, you know, our head, our heart and our gut. Um, so the head for the, for the intellect and, and for the, the creativity, the heart for the compassion, the loving kindness and the gut for the courage for action. And I think for me, currently in education, what's missing is the heart. So we've focused a lot on the mental and intellectual and the courage to take action. But the heart has been really downplayed. Mm. And we need to bring in our heart to align all three so we can bring our heart to, to be, you know, flourishing young people, flourishing parents and flourishing also teachers. Um, because it's a system, it's a, like an ecosystem, and and like any ecosystem, if one one little bit, one part of the ecosystem is fragile, then it will have a huge impact on the other elements in that ecosystem. Absolutely, look, I agree with you, and I suspect since are we moving into because I was going to ask you about this flourishing model that you are talking about in, in your book and and that you're working on in this piece of research, can you perhaps you, you said you're on a mission to change the face of education and I'm assuming your flourishing student model is, is sort of the, the, the spearhead of that. Can you perhaps explain to us what you mean by this? What, what is the model and then how do you want to change the face of education? Yeah, sure. So um, the flourishing student model is a model that I created when I researched uh, for the flourishing student um, in 2014. So I researched for about almost three years before I wrote the book and published it in 2017. Um, and what I discovered when I was doing my research is uh, first, 
um, that in the UK, and again, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but when uh, British people talk about mental health, they use the words in with negative modifiers. So they use it as um, men, meaning mental ill health. Yes. Whereas mental health is actually a very positive word. It's something we all have and we can all look after in the same way that we have physical health and we can look after our physical health. So those were the first findings. But also what I discovered when I was looking at my students is that some of them had a mental ill health, you know, diagnosis. So they may be clinically depressed or they may be, um, you know, suffering from OCD or um, ADHD, but they were doing really, really well. They were flourishing. And so that made me curious. And I, I'm, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm interested in, in people and I'm a bit of an ethnographer. I've always been an observer of, okay, what's this behavior and, you know, the different cultures. Um, I've brought that in and I actually interviewed students who were either flourishing or languishing and looking at what they did differently. And what we can see from flourishing students, and I'm, I'm about to sort of work on on publishing a, a specific paper on flourishing students um, soon. But the, what we see from flourishing students is that they, um, they obviously, they're roots. So the image is, imagine a flower, and each individual is a unique flower. Um, so you can be an ivy, an orchid, uh, you know, climbing ivy, a, a rose bush, whatever. Um, and, and each flower will have will need different nutrients and will have to be looked after sort of specifically and find whatever works for, for their well-being. So that's really important because very often we look for silver bullets and we try and find the one-size-fits-all solution. There mm -hmm. isn't one. We need to find the solution for that specific flower, that spe specific unique individual. Um, and then so at the bottom, the roots and the roots contain our values, our beliefs, our past experiences, the things we bring with us um, into the stem. So the stem is our mindset and we either have a fixed mindset or, the, or a growth mindset. Again, it's a, it, all of this is a continuum. So, you know, we may have a fixed mindset in one area more than another. But mm. The growth mindset is all of the work of, uh, of Carol Dweck oh, in the yes. States. Yep. Um, and that will then feed the uh, the leaves, so life skills and academic skills for for the students and for us as adults, it, it's our professional skills rather than academic skills. And then at the top, you have uh, the petals with the head of the flower and you have five healths. So flourishing students don't just focus on their mental health, but they also focus on their physical health. Um, so from some of the interviews, actually sleep is one of the biggest under, underrated part of the physical health that uh, people or young people don't always use effectively. So they pull all-nighters and that has quite a lot of uh, negative effects on their physical and mental health and emotional health. Um, then emotional health, so the ability to express your emotions, both positive and negative. Uh, effectively social health having a good tribe and a good network of people you can rely on and uh, have a sense of belonging and uh, develop positive relationships and finally the most again sort of 
less spoken of, particularly in education, um, spiritual health. So mm. either a clear sense of belonging or, you know, a clear sense of um, I know why I'm studying what I'm studying because you know, I want to be an interpreter for the uh, you know, um, United Nations, for example, or actually a sense of belonging, being part of something bigger, you know, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it. So that, those are the five, five health. And then the other five is linked to that cultural agility that I mentioned. And what I noticed is that uh, young people who are flourishing are open, curious, flexible. They are resilient and they use language. So the story they tell are different from languishing students hmm. because a flourishing student will say it's possible and I can. Whereas, and you know, or they, they might say it's difficult, but I'm trying, I'm doing my best. Uh, whereas a languishing student is more likely to say, I can't, swiftly followed by do it for me. Mm. Wow, how powerful. So it's coming back to those stories that we tell ourselves. This is what I talk about on Your Freedom Unlimited all the time. And it's, it is so powerful. What I also think is amazing how you've brought together that, you know, obviously the research you've done in terms of how students are operating, but then marrying up with those cultural agility principles. That's a really fascinating way of looking at it, very unique way, only available to you probably because of your your background. You know, you've been able to really bring those things together. That's mm -hmm. that's amazing. So it's very powerful. So we've got the five healths and then those five elements of, so there's five characteristics. And for you, so it's really 10 elements that allow us to sort of flourish or not. So I was interested earlier when you said you're doing the research and you said there were some people, say, with ADHD or one of, one of the Ds that were still flourishing. What were they doing? Because I know this is a big a growing concern for a lot of parents and everyone wants their children to, to flourish. But what were, what were the ADHD um, people doing that was supporting them to flourish? Well, they were, first of all, acknowledging where they were at. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the biggest you know, I was saying about the fact that as human beings, we're quite lazy and we want shortcuts and we want easy one-size-fits-all solutions. Mm. And I think that the students that I, I met who had ADD or ADHD, I mean, you know, all of those, um, first recognised that this is where they were at, so that acceptance of mm. what's going on for them um, but not turning their um, their illness, and it's true of of a lot of other um, students who had other things like depression. So again, you know, in terms of the language, you know, the difference between saying I am depressed as opposed to I have AD, ADHD or mm. you know I suffer from, because that I am again, it becomes your identity, it's who you are, so it will just drive everything you do and every behaviour. So just a shift of language might be, you know, um, you know, for example, more languishing students would say things like, my depression, my anxiety, like it belongs to you. Mm. And it's part yeah. of you. So like looking at the language, you know, the linguistic, the words we use, to construct our our you know our identity but also you know to talk about our behaviors and what we do and I think you know that particular student I, I can think of he very much 
accepted that you know this just like you would accept I guess and this is what I would really love to see a, a lot more of in terms of mental illness versus the mental health which is a continuum we go up and down mm-hmm. and we always mm-hmm. have is that he recognized that just like um, you know, obviously the ADHD or, or the depression would be an illness just like you know you would suffer from cancer or you would suffer from uh, cholesterol or you know something else another illness so he found uh, he sought the medical um, advice to help him deal with that um, in an effective way so he could then still live well because it's possible to live well even if you have an illness it's so true isn't it that's exactly right and it's that whole ability to not label yourself as Mm. having that having that experience and I know I went through a period of time where I I experienced anxiety and everything shifted when I no longer labeled myself as that it was Mm. very much around that understanding that that was a component of of my life but it wasn't my whole life and this notion of ownership that you talk about is really interesting my depression my anxiety so how and again it's that those language those subtle language shifts they may seem subtle but they're actually worlds apart to say that's something that I experienced versus that's mine and I own it Mm. um one of the things you were talking earlier about this competition and and funneling students through to to basically through the system um to me that is where sometimes we can lose our authenticity what role does authenticity play in the role of of the flourishing student model so um well i'm gonna go back to my free brains Mm -hmm. so um you know eq so you know sort of uh, emotional intelligence IQ, you know, sort of uh, intellectual intelligence, intellect, but AQ is more about your gut and the courage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, you, you, I'm sure you and and uh, um, all your listeners will be familiar with Brené Brown mm-hmm. for that, the courage to be who we are. Um, and I think it, it, you know, one of my colleagues, Nicola Hewlin, talks about AQ, authenticity, you know, being mm. authentic, being us, ourselves. And it goes back to being free to be who we are, being okay with who we are and not wanting to be, you know, if you're a, an orchid, you're an orchid. You don't have to want to be the climbing ivy um, on the wall because actually what you will need will be completely different. And it's this, I'm, I'm sure you've also seen this image of, you know, education. And then it says, right, everybody will be, uh, today the test is to climb a tree and you've got an elephant, you've got a, a, a little goldfish in a bowl and a monkey and, you know, all of those things. For me, this is what's really important and vital is that we need to meet every single child and young person where they're at. Mm. Mm. be they you know uh, an ivy or or an orchid or a you know uh, I don't know whatever you you want to you want to use as an image for for you um but it's respecting the individual and meeting the individual and allowing them to be who who they are who they truly are Mm. um 
and it goes back to you know sort of like circle to the beginning of our conversation when I said you know I am allowing my children to be to be themselves um, and and to go and explore what makes them tick what they like what they're interested in um, rather than just saying no you, you you can't do this or no you will go and do that or you know I think you should go and study because that, that's one of the things that I see with some of my students they arrive at university and they've been taught that they need a degree um, and they may not be passionate about the subject mm-hmm. um, but their teachers will say oh you're good at French so go and study French uh, but I remember one of my tutees, you know, she, thank God she's actually realized and she's left and I'm really happy, but she wasn't engaging with her studies. And, and I was saying to her, okay, why are you here? What's driving you? And her first words were, actually, I wanted to study photography, but my parents and my teachers told me that I needed to do drama and French because I was good at them. Um well, how are you going to be authentic if who you want to be is a photographer and you're studying French and, and drama? It's it not going to be possible. It doesn't quite add up, does it? And that's exactly that. It's this real authenticity piece that's very central to, to this whole model. So your whole, you're saying you're on a mission to, cha- mission to change the face of education. How would you like to see education change? What's your plan? How, how, how would you love to see this flourishing student um, model integrated? So the first thing I want to say to all the people out there who, like me, are teachers, I am not saying you're not doing a good job. I'm saying well done because actually you're doing the best you can with a system that I believe is not working. So it's not a criticism of any of my colleagues and of the education setting uh, per se. Um, it's, a, it's a notion that I think we need to have an upgrade of the educational system because it's still based on a very Prussian sort of version of we educate you know, people either to join the army or to go into factories. Um, and I think we need to look at our system so that it can enable young people to become curious lifelong learners and that's what i mean by changing the face of education so Mm -hmm. allowing young people to really explore um so they can really be lifelong learners you know we we don't stop learning ever we learn you know not just at school, but outside of school. Um, and it's about empowering young people to, to have the tools in their toolbox to be lifelong learners, you know, for the rest of their life and to be conscious creators, therefore. Mm, of their lives and their experience so mm. that they can effectively feel more free within themselves, I'm assuming. That's really where you're coming from with this. So that's yeah. fantastic. That's fantastic. And how are you going on this process? So what, in terms of, you know, starting to institute these changes, I'm, I guess you're doing this piece of research, which sounds like it's going to be fairly important to part of that process. Yes. So research, um, I, I always say, because a lot of my colleagues say, you've got a full-time job, it's a good job, why, why do you keep doing the flourishing student thing? 
you know, why do you have a podcast? Why do you do all the things you do? I do this because I want to be, I want to be the, the, you know, the change I want to see in the world. So it starts with me as an individual and it's one conversation at a time, like the conversations we're currently having. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, it doesn't matter if I have a huge impact or very, you know, an impact with one student or two students, it's enough. It, it's about one conversation at a time. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I really think that the, the change needs to happen in an organic way where, you know, I said earlier on, for me, systems, you know, education is a system. And as part of this system, you have parents and you have staff, you know, teaching and non-teaching staff, uh, but you also have young people. And it's about all everybody in the system being part of this, because you can't have just the school doing things you know young people spend more time with their family than they do with in schools so parents have a huge impact too um and it's about finding i can't do the work alone so it's about finding other people who are like-minded who like me want to change and affect education so we have a flourishing education and and it's about building on the amazing work that's already being done by colleagues um, and making it even better so that staff go and do what they love, which is teach their passion for a subject and enable young people to discover, you know, to feel that passion and to light a fire within to learn more and more and more on that particular topic. Hmm. So what would a change system look like? How would that be different to say what you're experiencing now? Is it this more open flow that you're talking about of students being able to go and choose what they want to, to, to learn? What, what, how would it look different? I think it would be different in a sense that the grades would not be the end all and be all. So you know, the, those really high stakes sort of exams and the fact that we, the, the focus is about um, getting the good grades at the end. It's valid. I mean, you know, yes, we need to validate learning to show that the person has learned and understands the topic. I get it. You know, I, I, I'm in, in education. I understand that we need to assess. But but the problem is the focus currently on on grades and, and on results is taking away from the learning process and the, what it requires to be a lifelong learner. Um, you know, that openness, that curiosity. It, if you're told there's only one answer, it's at the back of the book, that kills curiosity. You know, mm -hmm. you're not going to want to explore different things and I don't know about you but every time I've been interested in a topic that sparked curiosity and then I've been really like wanting to know more and more and more and more so this is what we, we I would like to see a lot more of in education is sparking little you know interest you know fire within um I can't remember um 
you know, it's Freire's sort of work saying, well, you know, Paolo Freire's work saying, uh, it's it's not like a banking system. We we don't have to fill our kids with knowledge. It's about enabling them to to explore and sort of say yes, no, that doesn't, you know, I don't really like that, um, and being okay with that. You know, mm. I've always been more interested in in language, in in you know modern languages, in English, in Spanish, in in you know French. Then you know as I sort of developed more confidence in in myself as a learner. Um, and trust that our young people, if we allow them to explore that inner guidance, have inner guidance. They know what feels right and what does not feel right for them. And they can, and it's that learning to trust that, isn't it? And I think as adults, I mean, I've certainly know I've been learning over the last few years to trust my own inner guidance, and that's been quite a journey. But if we can instill this in young people, all the better. So does that link back, Fabian, into you mentioned earlier, quite a bit earlier in our conversation about the heart, the heart piece has perhaps not been uh, emphasised much in education, you know, that the grades have and the courage has, but not so much the heart. How does that play into this? I'm curious about that. What, what's your view on, on how, that how, how that plays into this picture? So um, this is the work in progress that I'm, I'm currently looking at. Um, I've just put an uh, application in for funding to work with a local school back in the UK um, to create a, um, it's literally a co-designed well-being program with a group of 10 young people. Um, so the other thing that I think has, has been happening around well-being is that we, again, the adults, are coming in are saying to young people, this is how you need to do it, and this is how you look after your well-being. Um, and actually, speaking to young people, they see that as us being hypocritical because they see us adults, teachers, head teachers, parents, as the main source of their stress, mm. the same with education. And they say, well, you're the main source of my stress and you're asking me to look after my mental health and my well-being, that's really hypocritical. So I think there needs to be a shift again uh, with young people where we co-create because young people are the best place to know what well-being looks like for them, given yeah. their culture, the environment they're growing in, you know, they, they're growing up in. And so um, the, the, the plan I have is to create. So, yes, of course, with my research and my knowledge, I have some knowledge and I have something that I can help them with. So, you know, the building awareness through mindfulness, the teaching them cultural agility, the, you know, body movement and learning to listen to your body and the inner guidance, all of that is that extremely valid. And so I'm going to work with professionals to work with those 10 young people and share with them and then enable them to use the, 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 the program, what we're going to be teaching them to develop their well-being programs for them, unique individuals, what works for them. And then to go out there in the school and become well-being champions. So they then impart their knowledge with their peers 
because they'll listen much more to their peers than they'll listen to me, middle-aged, you know, woman. Mm. Um, and really empower young people to to take charge of their well-being um, mm. of you know discovering okay what what is a little bit skewed in my well-being is it my mental health is it my physical health am I not very good at expressing my emotions or, or sitting with my negative emotions um, is it more my spiritual health you know do I do I feel that I'm I'm exploring something that I'm passionate about you know what's my language like all of those things and and for everybody and I've, I've said this several times now you know in, in almost an hour but it's about recognizing that we are all unique individuals we yeah. are perfect unique individuals who have forgotten that we are perfect so it's about exploring how that uniqueness shines in this physical world, how we are showing up. Um, so we can become what I call a real lighthouse, a, a real beacon of light, shining our light, being okay with who we are as individuals, rather than wanting to be somebody else, the lighthouse that we're not in the other harbour. Fantastic. That's just amazing, Fabian, in terms of that's the journey that you could take people on so they can discover this at a younger age rather than waiting to get they hit their midlife crisis or parenting crisis, you know, later on in life. It's how can they come to that real knowledge and understanding of themselves and, as you say, be their own lighthouse or rather than comparing, getting to that competitive mode, that how can I be that unique individual and shine my light brightest? Because I completely agree with you. When we are all unique and perfect human beings, it's just rediscovering that within ourselves. So that's a very exciting piece of work that you're going to be doing. How exciting. Yes. Well, fingers crossed that we get the funding, and if not, well, I'll have to find another way of making it happen. <laughs> I'm sure you will. You've got a very much a light in your You've got a light in your own belly about this, I think. So I don't think you're going to let it let it drop anytime soon. So we've come to uh, we've come to the top of the hour on this on our interview. We've we've had such a great conversation. One, we've talked spoken a lot about well being. Just one quick tip: if someone's listening to this podcast at the moment, they might be feeling stuck, or perhaps they've got a child or someone in their in their life that's feeling stuck. What's one little piece of advice you'd like to give to them to? Perhaps that they could use that to 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 support themselves in some way. So I would say start where you are. You know, you start the journey from where you are. If you want to go to <clears throat> London and you're in Melbourne, then you'll have to acknowledge that you're in Melbourne and not in London. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's the first step is being extremely honest and recognizing where we are um because then we can start the journey onward so true you're exactly right and recognizing and being okay with that you're exactly mm. right i love it well fabian thank you so much for your time today you've we've covered a lot of ground we've talked about your your own parenting experience the uh, how to how you're really focused on changing education and all of this incredible research and work that you've done if people want to get in contact with you to, to find out more about you and to talk with you about what you're doing, where is the best place for them to connect with you? 
So people can find me on my website, flourishingeducation.co.uk, and they can also search on both uh, Spotify and um, Apple Podcasts for Flourishing Education for the for the podcast. And, and there, there's also the link to all my social media and the website, so they should be able to reach out to me. And they're very welcome if they want to ask any questions. Please do get in touch. Love to hear Thanks. from you. Absolutely. Well, and we'll have all of those links in the show notes as well to this show. So, um, well, Fabian, I want to say thank you so much again for your time today. It's been a really enlightening hour and looking at the world through your eyes as an educator, but also what you're wanting to do to really help shift the needle in a big way for students and for teachers alike. We didn't even really talk about how you're going to do that with, with teachers. We might talk, talk about that in the future, but thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, Janet. It's been great. We'll talk again very soon. Yes, speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Your Freedom Unlimited. If you like this show, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already... Subscribe, rate, and review Your Freedom Unlimited on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach me directly at jenramsey.com. Thanks for listening.